All right, diving in. We are continuing our series, preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, just kind of a quick recap where we are. Last time we talked, the big chunk, we finished the Sermon on the Mount, and now we're just in a chapter after this. So we're talking about what Jesus did immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we talked about a healing. This week, we're going to talk about another healing. So I will just dive in and start reading here. This is Matthew, whoa, I scrolled too far, chapter 8, I'm going to start at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell one to go, I tell this one to go, and they go. I tell that one to come, and they come. I say to my servant, do this, and they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done as you have believed it would. And the servant was healed at that moment. All right, let's just kind of walk through this slowly and we'll kind of unpack some things. So right at the very beginning here, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the centurion came to him asking for help. This is really just setting the stage geographically for where we're at here. So let's go up here because I'm don't trust this pointer. I made little points down here. So just kind of give us a orientation where we are. Jerusalem's down here where Jesus was born. Then we move up here. This is where Jesus spent the better part of his life, you know, up in Nazareth. Now, Capernaum, where Jesus kind of set up his shop, set up where he's going to do his ministry, just to the north up here. Now, if you remember when we talked about Capernaum, it's a small fishing, fishing village. Not that great. It's kind of a bad area. This is not an ideal place if you were thinking you were going to start a big ministry. But this is where Jesus chose to go. This is where the people were, the people that needed help the most. So that's where he went. If you notice, this area is also kind of in the middle of things. This is also a very strategic position from a military standpoint. So it makes sense that there is a Roman military presence here. It is strategic and a place that causes lots of trouble. So there is a strong military presence here. So having the centurion here, Makes perfect sense. So I think it's important to remember, Jesus is going home. This is the town Jesus lives in during this time of his ministry. So it's all setting things up. So this insurance comes to him, says, my servant lies home paralyzed, suffering terribly, and Jesus said to him, shall I come heal him? Now, if you have your Bibles, or when you get home, look at your Bibles, look at different translations here. Because I think this, this line here, what Jesus says here, is fascinating. Because about half the translation will take it as a statement. So, I shall come heal him. And the other half take it as a question. The Greek is ambiguous. I tend to lean toward question because it grammatically makes more sense in the Greek. Um, one of the translations that I absolutely loved of this line is Jesus responding, you want me to come heal him. Why? That seems like a weird response, doesn't it? Like, why is Jesus, 
you get hackles going up a little bit here. Well, think about who this is. This is a Roman centurion, a high official in the Roman army. Rome and Jesus don't have the best relations right now. Think about it. Rome is the reason Jesus was, try, was, was killed, or not killed, was tried to be killed as a child. Rome is the reason Jesus had to flee, had to live the first few years of his life in exile as a refugee in Egypt. Rome has Jesus' cousin in prison right now at this very moment. Rome will eventually kill Jesus' cousin in a few chapters, and eventually Jesus. So this relationship, even just on this personal level, not, not the best. And if you go out to a cultural level, Rome oppressing Israel, the Jewish people, that's a relationship that is tenuous and headbutty and not great. So there's some tension here on a personal level and a cultural level. And this links back to something Jesus talked about just previously to this in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one thing to love your friends, one thing to love those who love you, but we're called to love our enemies. So now we're going to see Jesus get a chance to show that here. And what I think is fascinating about this is that the centurion kind of understands and sees this tenuous relationship. Because he replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Now, whether this person knows the personal relationship, Jesus and Rome, and the tensions going on there, he certainly knows of the cultural tensions going on. He knows you have no real reason to help me. Why would you help me? What I represent, my people have done nothing but oppress you. Why would you help me? But, it goes on to say what I think I'm going to argue is maybe the most profound, tight definition of Jesus incarnate, of Jesus. So he goes on to say, but, just say the word and my servant will be healed. For, I myself am, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell them to go this, they do that, I tell them to go that, they do that, all that. He is making a comparison, the centurion, of himself to Jesus. So let's look at how he's viewing himself here. I myself am a man under authority. What he means by that is he works under the authority of Rome, under the authority of Caesar. When he is out doing things, it is Caesar out doing things. When people look at him, they see Caesar. When he speaks, it is Caesar's words. His authority, everything he, he is doing is under the authority of Caesar. And so when he gives orders, the people that he's ordering know <laughs> that those orders are coming from Caesar. So he knows they're going to do it. They have to do it. Now switch it over to Jesus. For Jesus, it's a man under authority. A man, he's getting at the idea of Jesus as fully human the human side of Jesus, and under authority. What, what's Jesus' authority? His authority is God the Father. Everything Jesus does, says, is, is under the authority of God the Father. Getting at that fully divine side of Jesus. And then continue that path down, the authority Jesus has over nature, 
over everything comes from the Father. It's the authority of God. I just think that is an absolutely fascinating comparison that he just picks up on immediately. For him, the one-to-one ratio of, oh, I tell my employee, my, the people under me, my servants, what to do, and I know they're going to do it, is the equivalent of Jesus doing that to nature, to demons, to whatever. Just has that matter of fact, oh yeah, they, they have to do it. That is amazing. That, and we've talked about this kind of comparison a while ago, a couple times. It's the centurion is going from the minor to the major, using something small to explain something large. That's what he's doing here. His relationship, his authority, he's using as a comparison to talk about Jesus' authority. And I know, to me, this is such an amazing definition of Jesus. This is maybe the most tight, concise, exact definition of Jesus. And it's coming from a Gentile. It's coming from the bad guys. And this is a fact that does not slip past Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. This is the only time this word is used of Jesus. He was amazed. How? How? How could this person who was supposed to be my enemy, who was supposed to be the one against me, have such a faith and such an understanding of me, of this, of what we're doing? And what I think is really interesting is what Jesus does next. Notice who Jesus addresses. He said to those following him, not talking to centurion anymore, to those following him. The same those who had just heard the Sermon on the Mount and are coming down. So you could almost think of this as a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount almost, with object lessons now. I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. No one. He is just amazed at this statement, this faith. He goes on to talk about as, as you will see, as many will come from the east and the west, take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is, if you want to use the big fancy word, eschatological language, or language talking about the end times. Um, in Jewish eschatology, it's thought of the idea of a feast. That's kind of the, we'll gather together and have this great feast. The east to the west is kind of the idea of, we're bridging the gaps. We'll be reunited again. Uh, the history of Israel is really a history of separation. You have exile. You have the exile in Babylon. Before that, the exile down in Egypt. So it's, their history is just defined by separation. And so the end time is represented by a coming together of this group, a coming together of everyone, you know, basically a big family reunion again where we'll be together feasting with the founders of our culture, the founders of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's this huge family reunion, basically. But he talks about the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Subjects of the kingdom, you can also take, translate as children of the kingdom. Same idea. And this is hitting at something that Jesus also talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is that none of us, no one, deserves the kingdom of heaven. 
We all don't deserve it. That would, that's what we deserve. So, nothing we do, nothing we say, not the family we were born into will get us the kingdom of heaven. We can't earn the kingdom of heaven by what we do, who we are, where we were born, things like that. It's just a gift. A gift none of us deserve. A gift we cannot earn, that it does not matter who we are, we fall short of this. It is a pure, simple gift given and free, given freely by God. Linking back to this idea of the centurion. The centurion, according to kind of the world at the time, should have no association with God, should have no faith in God. But yet, God gave that centurion that faith, that faith that amazed even Jesus. And I think that is just an amazing kind of summary, hitting at that idea of what Jesus talked about earlier, of a big chunk of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about when you do good things, don't do them just to try to earn this or earn that. It's not going to work. You can't earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. Anything you do, where you are, none of that matters. What matters is your faith. What matters is your love. It's how God loves you. God. Bumping down, and I love how the, the miracle just is simple and plain. It says, go. Let it be done as you have believed. And it was done. Nothing flashy, nothing showy, very similar to the miracle we, we read about last time with the, with the leper. That it was, would happen, and it did. I love that. That just encapsulates this idea of faith and power. All right, so all this, what, what's the take home? What, what should we be pulling out of this? What, what is this saying for us today? Well, I think there's two things in here I want to highlight. The first one is assumptions. What we assume versus reality. I think there's two ways you can take assumptions. The first one is judging people. How often we make assumptions about other people and make implications or judgments because of that. I have a friend who is, falls on the like good side of that and assumes that their friends, when they find out what they do or what they work or whatever, assumes they're the best at it. That's a fun assumption, right? a good judgment. But most of our judgments don't tend to fall into that category, do they? Um, I scoured the internet for some good, the internet is a treasure trove of judgments, and so I found a couple good ones. This first one is from um, Dr. Tasha Stanton. So, she's a uh, professor, and she's at a conference. I don't know if, how many of you have been to academic conferences. They are, they're fun, but they are also a time where everyone is trying to outdo everyone else. Everyone is trying to show, I am the smartest person in the room. So, she tweets about um, an interaction she had. Friends at a conference, please do not assume that the people you talk to do not know anything. I was just told that I should really read what Stanton et al., or Stanton and colleagues, found about pain. This person is at a conference, and someone recommends, like, hey, you should read this paper. I think it would be a benefit to you. I am Stanton. She wrote the paper. They recommended her to read her own paper. No context. We don't know why that recommendation was given. Was it because she was so young? She's like, you obviously would not have read this. 
Is it because she was female? So you obviously wouldn't know this. You couldn't have written this. We have no idea why. But a, a judgment was made, and that just makes me laugh. Next one. Who knows who this is? Anyone? Anyone? Christine? That's Dolph Lundgren. Or you might know him from his character in Rocky, Ivan Drago. Yeah, it's big action movie star. It's been for a long time. Does anyone know what his first career was? I will give someone a million dollars if they can tell me what his, what his first career was, because you will never guess it. He's a, he was a chemical engineer. He has a master's degree in chemical engineering from the Royal Institute of Technology. He is a, Rhodes, or a, he is a Fulbright scholar. Only got into acting in grad school because he needed to pay rent. And then afterwards, after he got a couple roles, developed the persona of his on-screen character, no one would hire him. Because they're like, I'm not hiring the I will break you guy to work in my lab. Yeah. But actually, would still write papers after he became an actor under pseudonyms. Because no one would publish paper from Ivan Drago, right? Like, <laughs> no one's going to do that. So that's judging. Another thing we can do is make assumptions. Now, I tweeted about this earlier this week, so some of you saw it and have already made fun of me for it, but I'm going to retell the story. So, um, I was prepping for um, Advent. You know, Advent's a ways away, but it takes a lot of prep to do, so I was, you know, start, starting doing some reading, starting for it. One of the things I got came in a CD case. I was like, I, you know, it, it was slides, uh, all, yeah, stuff like that. I, I don't have a CD drive. Like, it, no one, uses, no one uses a CD drive anymore. So I had a very old computer that I'm like, all right, there's a CD drive on there. This thing has not been turned on in two to three years. I need to revive it. I spent the better part of two days babying this computer back to life, running two, three years worth of updates, hard resetting. Oh, it, it was an absolute nightmare. But after about two days, I got it up. I got it going. I got it to the point that I'm like, all right, I think... You can run well enough for me to put the CD in there, drag everything onto a jump drive, pull it off, and then use it on my computer. Get to that point, take the saran wrap off the CD case. I didn't want to open it because if I couldn't get the drive working, I could return it. Open it up, do that. Yep, those were not the words I was saying. <laughs> yes, I... I posted this a couple days ago, and people I have not talked to in 10 years were like, nope, I need to chime in and make fun of you for this. <laughs> yeah. So I had assumed that in the CD case would be a CD. It was not. Now, this is a kind of dumb, funny assumption, but I think it's a really good illustration and highlights something. Because I assumed there would be a CD in here. I, think that, I thought that was a safe assumption, but because I assumed something... It cost me two days of work. It cost me hours of time that I didn't need to do. Made my life harder and my week way worse off because I assumed something. So I think that that's the first thing this passage is getting at us. I mean, the idea of assuming something about someone. You know, the crowd. When he sees a centurion come, they're assuming this is a centurion. They're not going to know who Jesus is, what's going on. No, no, no. 
But then the centurion gives what I'm going to say is the four greatest, simplistic, tight definition of Jesus, a man under authority. I think the next thing this passage pulls out for us that's related to the first is just how difficult it is, but how necessary it is to love someone you might not want to. Jesus, in this example, has every reason to dislike this person from a personal standpoint, from a cultural standpoint. Just about every way you look at it, Jesus, we would have been like, understood it if Jesus had been like, nah, nope, I'm not healing your servant, your son, whoever it is, I'm not healing it. No. But he didn't. Because that would be going very much against what he said just a couple chapters earlier. Love your enemy. How difficult is that for us sometimes? To reflect that love to someone we kind of don't want to. So that is our homework this week. Think of someone you don't really like. Maybe they told a lie about you. It's someone you work with that is just annoying and you don't like them. Could be big reasons, little reasons. Think of someone you don't like. Try and bless them this week. Try and show some kind of love. Reflect some element of Christ's love to them this week. Now, that's not going to be easy. No one wants to do that, right? I don't want to do that. That, that is going to be hard. But if we're going to follow Jesus' example, he just showed us that. Just showed us showing love to the centurion, a person who he had absolutely every rational reason to dislike. Still showed love. Now, this act might not change your relationship. It more than likely won't change his relationship with this person in any way. But it'll still be showing love. It'll still be reflecting Christ's love. Maybe they'll get the tiniest glimpse of Christ through your actions this week. And it could be something small. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I didn't think of anything. Someone cuts you off at line at Starbucks or something. You buy their drink. I don't know. You just, it doesn't have to be this grandiose big thing. Something small could be the great first step in the hard, the difficult practice of loving your enemies. Loving people who you don't like and who probably don't like you in return. Generally, people you don't like don't like you. That tends to be kind of a mutual feeling. That's our challenge this week. Try and show Christ's love one person you don't particularly like this week. So if anyone does something nice for me this week, I'm going to know. I'm going <laughs> to no. All right, join me as we pray.